one of the reasons people love theme parks so much is because of nostalgia. And it's that it's those memories that are formed when we're children. And so I've been getting a lot of a lot out of going back into old newspapers and reading and seeing which company bought which theme park when and just really getting an idea of how how ownership has changed. I mean, it, 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 it teaches me about mergers and acquisitions. It teaches me about local geographic history of those places. And it teaches me about corporate history in general. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Well, it's fantastic. Did you just like circle the room while you did that? Hear the... I think that's the, the Doppler effect or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, how are you? Oh, I'm doing really well. Really excited for our guest today. But first, quick question for you. Yeah. What is the most amount of money you would be willing to spend to enter a theme park or attraction? How much money do I have? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a really good question. I there, There's a lot of parameters, right? Like, like how much money I have to spend, right? Which, which would enter into my mind and how badly do I want to enter that theme park? Right. If it's someplace I've never been before, my willingness to spend more is probably greater than someplace I've already been. Right. Similarly, um, with the, the, you know, the Q products, the cut line passes, you know, that also impacts the, the amount that you're paying. This is probably more of a detailed answer than you were looking for, but um, that also, that also impacts, you know, the experience that you're going to have. And my willingness to pay that has greatly gone up over the last 10 years or so. Um, and we've talked about this before, because I do believe that for the way I experience theme parks, that definitely enhances my experience. Sure, exactly. And that is specifically you and the things that you see value in, which then affects the threshold and the maximum amount that you are willing to pay, which could be much higher than someone else. And it could be much lower than another person. And that is one of the, the interesting things, kind of the, maybe the, the hidden or subconscious feelings that people have about pricing, which makes how, how do you price an attraction? How do you actually charge for a ticket? It, it makes it kind of confusing and it makes it difficult to find the perfect price that will optimize your revenue while not alienating out m many of your guests. And I think part of the problem is that we're putting a price on the experience, right? We're not mm -hmm. saying it costs X amount to build this widget and then we're going to mark that up for profit and here's what it costs. We're saying, you can go into this park. You're, you're basically buying, if it's a pay as you uh, pay one price, you're buying entrance into our, into our property. And what you do from here is up to you. You can go into a theme park and just sit on a bench. Right. But sure. if that's how you want to experience it, which I've done before. Um, but that's, if that's how you want to experience it, then, you know, that's, what's going to bring you value. But you're, to your point, how do you find that sweet spot? I think our guest today has some insight in the, into that. Yeah. Well, first, I want to hear more about that bench because it sounds absolutely incredible, but maybe that's for another time here. Our guest today is Dr. Martin Lewison, who's also known as Professor Roller Coaster. He teaches a variety of classes, including uh, themed experiences, theme parks and tourism studies at Farmingdale State College in Long Island. 
And he is super passionate about the industry. Not only does he teach the theme park industry, but he studies it as well. And pricing is one of the topics that we talk about today and really get into the, the nitty gritty granular details of dynamic and demand-based pricing within theme parks and attractions, really so you're providing that optimal experience for your guests and optimizing the amount of revenue that you are pulling in as well. And what I love about how he explains it, well, there's two things. Number one, how he ties it to the history of the industry, right? And, and you know, the evolution of experiences, but also to things that we're already doing that we're paying, you know, a premium for based on the experience, like an airline or a rental car, concerts, you know, those kind of things where you expect to pay more for a differentiated experience. And he will even say it doesn't translate perfectly to the theme park world, but that doesn't mean we can't try. And that doesn't mean that we can't put those things into place. So we're not leaving money on the table. Right. And a lot of it too is, you know, how you anchor your price, like what is your actual admission? And then in which way is it actually going? If you think of a theater, whether it's a movie theater or a live theater, there's a standard for admission if you're going to go on Saturday night. But if you're going to go on Sunday afternoon, oh, you've got the matinee ticket that's discounted. So it's important as far as positioning this to your guests and how you actually present that you're you're in it for them as well. You're not just trying to charge the highest amount that the guest is willing to pay every single time. Uh, when from an economics and business standpoint, that's that's exactly what we're all trying to do in order to have the greatest success in business. So uh, Martin's really interesting. He has also visited more than 800 theme and amusement parks around the world and has ridden more than 2,100 roller coasters. So he knows a lot, has seen a lot, and uh, has been to many parks and, and can share a lot of stories from his travels. But I would say without further conversation, let's just jump right into this interview. Here we go. Dr. Martin Lewison, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We're really excited to have you here today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful to be here with you. Absolutely. Really excited for our conversation today. So can we start off, if you could give us a, a quick introduction and bio and tell us a little bit about what you do? Okay. Well, I'm a, I'm a professor, associate professor of business management at Farmingdale State College, which is right in smack in the middle of uh, Long Island. And uh, it's a teaching school. It's not a research institution. So I have a heavy course load, a lot of students, you know, so most of my work is grading and grading papers and writing tests and things like that. But uh, my teaching areas are fairly interesting. I teach strategic management. I teach uh, principles of marketing, international marketing. I teach American business history. And then I also teach a course that I designed called Theme Parks and Tourism. And I've been teaching that for almost five years, I guess. So that's my that's my main uh, main academic work, and uh, at least at, here at Farmingdale. And I also do service for the college. You know, I'm on committees and things like that. And then about 25% of my time is devoted to research, and I focus that research on the theme park industry. And I would get I would guess that some of that research involves riding roller coasters and going to parks. It has to. I go to a lot of theme parks and ride a lot of roller coasters and I say it's research and it is to some degree. I mean, you know, I'm looking at the guest experience. I'm looking at operations and things like that. So to that extent, I'm, I'm just interested in how theme parks work. So I'm always looking around and seeing what's, what's going on, what's missing, what's neat. I, you know, I, I was just talking to one of my students in class today because this week's topic was service, service excellence. And I showed a picture of, I, I took this photograph from the toilet seat of a bathroom stall at Tokyo Disney Sea. And there in the corner of the toilet stall is a little seat to put your baby, like to lock your baby into a seat. And I thought, how genius, you know, you've only got two arms, you're, you're probably carrying souvenirs and a all kinds of other stuff and you need to use the facilities. What are you going to do with your baby? Like hold them like, you know, like a duffel bag in your arm or something like that. Here's a place to put the. One of my students was completely unimpressed. And <laughs> I said, you know, they clean the thing a thousand times a day. She's like, I'm not putting my baby on that dirty thing. I, this is Tokyo. It's, it's immaculate. 
I couldn't win her over. So that was a that was a a, a little uh, got the L today. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about how you're able to? bring these research findings into the classroom. So what is it, What what is your, I would say mindset when you're walking around a park and when you're, when you're riding roller coasters or when you're, you know, when you're using the restroom and kind of seeing these types of things of being able to collect all of this from a research standpoint, but also from an education standpoint too. So I think that, so in terms of the course design, it's really a broad overview. So I have like a week that's just food and beverage a week just on service management, a week on, you know, on safety. And, and then I devote, I'll admit, I devote several, several weeks to history because I really liked, and, and I've kind of fallen in this direction, even in terms of my research, I really like to know where we've come from. And I also think that one of the reasons people love theme parks so much is because of nostalgia. And it's that it's those memories that are formed when we're children. And so I've been getting a lot of a lot out of going back into old newspapers and reading and seeing which company bought which theme park when and just really getting an idea of how how ownership has changed. I mean, it, 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 it teaches me about mergers and acquisitions. It teaches me about local geographic history of those places. And it teaches me about corporate history in general. So I, I love the I love that stuff. I also bring in guest speakers. I've had some amazing guest speakers. I've had like Bernie Campbell from Whirly Drinkworks. He's just amazing. I, I, whenever I go to a theme park and I find a Whirly Drinkworks, you know, souvenir cup, I take a picture and send it on Twitter to, out to Whirly Drinkworks and to, and to Bernie, you know, just so everybody knows I have a Whirly Drinkworks cup or a popcorn, a popcorn souvenir bucket. Um, we also have a unit on, um, what am I? What am I missing? Anyway, I also have a long unit on pricing, and that—that's really—that's where the thrust of my research has been up until, let's say, COVID. And I started. I was, you know, my PhD is in business management from the University of Pittsburgh, and I've always been interested in pop culture. So I—I I wrote a lot on pop pop culture, and my PhD thesis was about logos and nicknames and mascots in minor league baseball. And so I, I was, so my first academic job was in sport management, sport marketing. And then I kind of turned back into, you know, to sort of vanilla business. I've done a lot of research on business ethics. So I think my, so I have future projects that I'm looking at the ethics of pay for, pay for the queue. So I'm looking at that stuff. And anyway, I ended up getting a job on Wall Street. So I on Wall Street and, you know, Wall Street's trying, starting to crumble around me. And this is where I'm when I met my wife. And so my wife and I started visiting theme parks with an insane vengeance because my Wall Street job was stressful. Friday night, we get on a plane, fly wherever, ride roller coasters all weekend come back Monday morning and I'm on the 42nd floor of 55 Water Street and I'm still still nauseous from the roller coasters. And when you're up that high on the 42nd floor, the building is swaying a little bit. So I, I, remember, I remember feeling that on Monday mornings, but I found a job in the Netherlands and that was teaching finance at a hotel and hospitality college. And I thought, you know, I would really love to do more with theme parks, with tourism. And so I took that job in the Netherlands and there I learned about revenue management and dynamic pricing in the hotel industry. And I remember, you know, the light bulb going off and saying, you know, a lot of the conditions that allow for dynamic pricing in the hotel and car rental and airline business definitely apply to theme parks, not perfectly, it's, you know, because mainly because when you sell out at a hotel, then, you know, you literally have limited uh, inventory at a hotel. Theme parks capacity is much more stretchy. So it comes down to, I, I've certainly been to theme parks where it says, uh, I think it was Fantasialand in, in uh, Santiago and Chile. Now there's a sign on the gate. It says, when we have 4,000 people, the gate closes. Sorry. 
you know, and that's so some parks actually put a hard limit. Uh, I, I mean, I know Disney does, and they're they're you know one of the few parks that you know hits their capacity and has to manage that on a somewhat regular basis. So I started looking at how theme parks price, and really got consumed with that. And I collected a lot of data in 2009 and published a paper in 2017 that compared theme park pricing in 2009 in the United States with theme park pricing in 2017. Now, all everybody knows that theme parks became more sophisticated in their pricing over that period. I kind of documented it in an academic paper saying that this, this isn't like if we observe this, it's not by chance. There's a statistically significant difference in the number of theme parks that used to price differentially than the parks. Now, you know that once upon a time, theme parks would you know, paint this year's admission price on a piece of wood, hammer it into the wall, and that was the price. And that's leaving money on the table because there are people who are willing to pay more than that price, and there are people who can't pay that price. So if you can adjust your prices, then you can make more money. That's just from economics 101 and, <clears throat> and understanding elasticity of demand. So, and then, you know, and then I go to theme parks and start seeing uh, menus in the restaurants are, are now TV screens, right? Instead of chalkboards. And it's like, well, this, so the technology is moving in that direction where you can make these kinds of adjustments. I mean, you don't want somebody to wait on when they get online to buy a hot dog and it says $1.50. And then when they get to the front of the line, it says $1.75. You can't do that. But you can do day-to-day -day price changes. And that's what uh, that's what Priceline, which is that software company from the Netherlands, that's what they do. And so I contacted uh, the general manager of, don't, don't laugh at me, but there's a theme park in the Netherlands. It's S-L-A-G-H-A-R-E-N. And it's pronounced Slacharen. Slacharen. And I contact because they were doing dynamic pricing on on their website. They were they had a price board like they had a they had a booking calendar the same way a hotel might have a booking calendar. And it said, oh, if you come to the theme park on this day, this is the price. If you come to the theme park on this day, this is the price. They were doing it before Six Flags. They were doing it before Disney. And I contacted the general manager. I said, you want to do a presentation with me at IAPA? And she said, sure. So Three years in a row, I gave a presentation at IAPA on dynamic pricing and, and differential pricing. And I think I think it was well received. Um, and then sort of everybody, you know, kind of became familiar with it. So I haven't done a I haven't done a presentation for a while, but I, I still try to go to IAPA and talk to people about this stuff. And that's how I got to know Priceline because they were they had built Slacharen's system. I know we want to get more into the dynamic pricing uh, as we go, but something you talked about a minute ago really fascinated me. Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, how you kind of use the study of theme parks to uncover so many other things about business. Like you talked about acquisitions and, and how, um, uh, how companies change from, from, you know, one company to another and that kind of thing. And, and that, is something that can be taught for any line of business, right? You know, a car company or whatever. But what also really kind of got my gears turning was that piece about history, because I'm right there with you. I love the theme park history. So I'm curious if there's things that you find particularly fascinating about things you've learned about the history of the industry or, or even things that your students find, you know, like, like really interesting, like the light bulb goes off when you say this happened or this happened. I'm just, just, just walk us through some of the history stuff. Well, let me, so I, I, I think I, I'm, I bore my students to death with the history stuff. Like I did, a, I did an hour and a half lecture on the history of SeaWorld. And I think as soon as I said the words Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, I saw my students' eyes glaze over. So I think I need to work on the exciting stuff, but I've really gone down the rabbit hole on that stuff. And, and this is what I, I've been working on a project for the last two years that I, I mean, I've, I found the missing link. Like, you, you know how they, they have, there are monkeys and there are humans and it's like, where's the, where's the fossil record here? And so I found the missing link between, have you guys ever heard of, um, of a camera, no, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, I, it, during the semester, it's hard to devote myself to research, but you know, in the old days, 
they used to just paint glass in colors and then project that with a candle. And that was that was the closest thing they had to film. And I'm forgetting Phantasmagoria is one of the words. I mean, you know, Pepper's Ghost is a, you know, a 150 year old gag that's still in use today, still amazes people. So I found that that jump from sort of the uh, the, the early motion pictures to today's 4D cinema and and I also got to scratch this nostalgia itch. When I was a kid, we went to this, uh, we were taken into Manhattan, like, oh, I'm from suburban New Jersey. So all of our field trips were into Manhattan, Museum of Natural History, the Hayden Planetarium, uh, Empire State Building, and so forth. They would always take us to the McGraw-Hill Building, and in the basement of the McGraw-Hill Building, was a show called the New York Experience. And I, ha I happen to have an original flyer from the New York Experience right here. And one day I somebody said something that made me recall this. And I went to see it twice on school trips. Somebody mentioned it and I went and I tried to look it up on, on Wikipedia. There was no article on Wikipedia. And I said, oh my God, Someone's got to write the article in the New York experience. So I got my head so far into the guts of the New York experience that you wouldn't believe. But it was it was a multimedia 4D show before digital. So they literally had like 35 slide projectors, flashing images. They had three motion picture projectors, all timed with this extremely rudimentary computer. It opened in 1973. And actually, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can see this text, but you can see it says a Translux Bing Crosby production, right? So, and I, I didn't know this, but the New York experience was the third of these shows. The first was the San Francisco experience. Then they did a Hawaii experience. Then the New York experience, they did a Taiwan experience at the at the 74 Spokane World's Fair. And and anyway, I dived right in. Disney, you know, came up according to the owners at the time, Disney came up from Burbank to watch this show in San Francisco. And they said, wow, you're the closest thing to the stuff we have. You know, they were doing circle vision and that kind of thing at the time. So. I've been sort of tracing the roots of early, you know, early spectator theater shows, even like the spook shows from the 50s, right, where they used to, you know, just try to terrify people in dark theaters with crazy effects and things like that. So I've been tracing that history through the world's fairs, because that stuff really got developed at the 64, 65 world's fair with the Eames and their IBM pavilion, and then into Expo 67 in Montreal. And I've kind of wa got, watched that history go through. Of course, it ends when digital takes over, uh, but that, that has been a really interesting history. And I'm someone who generally doesn't like those 4D, 5D, 6D, 7D theater shows. I'd much rather ride a roller coaster, but I found this history so fascinating. And and it's a forgotten, it's a, you know, 6 million people saw this show and I, I never can find anybody else who, who saw it. It's bizarre. So I really love digging into that because it reminds me of my childhood, but it also is this unexplored. And I mean, it's also interesting because these were standalone attractions, right? You know, how long does a movie last in a theater? Two, three weeks, whatever, or it has to be inside some complex uh, actually, I just went on the Flying Theater at Pigeon Forge. That was kind of interesting. And it and that's also a standalone attractive, but it's part of this entertainment complex, right? But this was a, literally a standalone attraction, just sitting in the middle of Manhattan. Uh, the one in San Francisco was more like Fisherman's Wharf and taking advantage of that tourist traffic there. Um, so anyway, that, that's, been, and that's been an amazing experience and a journey, plus going on eBay, constantly looking for people's who are finally emptying out their attics and finding out, you know, finding posters, finding flyers and stuff like this. I just got this. I just, just found this on eBay, this little, 
they, there was a pre-show uh, called Little Old New York. That, 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 little, that little banner that the plane is flying was Little Old New York. They had a turn of the century um, kind of, you know, like, like Nickelodeon kind of, uh, you know, you could watch a movie by turning a crank and, you know, a little gift shop and, and, you know, snack bar, that kind of thing. And the, the whole thing was themed to the old elevated railway station uh, on Sixth Avenue. You know, the elevated railways in New York used to be a big thing. Obviously, it's still a thing in Chicago. I mean, it's still a thing in New York, too. But they had created this themed, uh, you know, it was a themed attraction where you walked in, into a past uh, a history of New York where you it was and they even had like sounds of the trains running by and like subwoofers creating creating rumbles. The the theater, the New York experience actually had an enormous subwoofer that was like 13 feet across under the floor in an early version of sense around. I don't know if you remember sense around, but it would it so the idea was to shake the theater when when the when the subways went by it, and plus it was you know, it was a 70 foot wide screen with with side screens that went up and down. There was a fog machine for New York Harbor. There was a bubble machine for the, uh, you know, for prohibition, you know, so they, it, it was really amazing. And they and Translux also, you, you know, was was a co-producer and Translux was this storied theater chain uh, that had been famous for newsreel theaters. And then for bringing Japanese anime to the United States, like Gigantor and Speed Racer. And uh, they had gone into the entertainment business and they, they tried to create these standalone attractions. Unfortunately, they failed ultimately, but anyway, that's, now you know the, now you know the rabbit hole I've been down for <laughs> literally two years. And, and that's what I had to do when I couldn't get on a plane and go on a roller coaster somewhere. There you go. Yeah, uh, that's so interesting. Th thanks for sharing that. And um, it, it must have been really cool for you to be able to, I guess, like you said, go down that rabbit hole and do all that research and see uh, kind of the the evolution of the way that you know the, the way the themed entertainment has has worked, and particularly before there were all the technological enhancements and benefits that we have today, where you see things that. Uh, that I don't know if people necessarily have the imagination for today because we we don't need it because we've got all that technology. Even um, very recently, uh, my wife and I, we've been watching uh, Behind the Attraction on Disney Plus. And just last night we watched the episode on It's a Small World. And I've always had an appreciation for, I guess, kind of the simplicity of that attraction, but and the the very low tech, non-technical way that it was uh, that it was designed and the effects were put in. And um, I think even, even just watching that last night kind of you know, sort of jogged my memory and, and kind of uh, made me realize, yeah, there people had to really get very creative to make something look real, feel real, and provide that, uh, that level of uh, entertainment experience for, uh, for their guests. So, and, and of course, it also tied in with um, not the 74 World's Fair, but the 64 World's Fair in, uh, in New York, not too far from where you are. So drive by it almost every day, the <laughs> World's Fair site. Yeah, there's a guy named Joel Zika in Australia who has devoted his academic life to the study of dark rides. And he he is so interesting, his stuff. And, and he's published a bunch of papers. And he, he, you know, there is a, you know, everything we know about history, we know because somebody went through papers and, you know, dug up things and, and documented what happened. You know, somebody went through and looked at contracts and look at, looked at the newspapers of the day. And really that's, you know, that's, that's something that's not happened in our industry. Not at least, well, I, I mean, I, you have to say Disney is extremely well-documented uh, because people have been fascinated with it for so long. So people dig and dig and dig on Disney, but there's a whole nother world of our attractions industry that is begging for, I think more, you know, more research and more digging. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many different facets of the industry and, you know, you, you just take theme parks as one and that could be, you know, a whole thesis right there, but then you have family entertainment centers and how they have, 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 you know, been a spinoff, if you will, and roadside attractions. And I did a lot of work with agritourism a couple of years ago, and those are 
almost becoming small theme parks, right? You know, it's not just about the pumpkin patch and the and the corn maze, but now they've got attractions and things like that. So um, that part to me is is really really fascinating. Um, but I do want to go back because I, I I mentioned that we would get back to it, the dynamic pricing piece, um, a little bit on that. So from your perspective, and maybe even things you teach your students. What are the, the kind of strategic practices that people need to understand about dynamic pricing and how it can help them as, a, as an operation? Well, it helps to just understand. I mean, I like going back to economics 101 and price elasticity. So if you charge one price, then, then that's the price the customers see. And if they, if they, if, uh, if they're willing to pay that price or more, then they'll pay that price. Any customer that is not willing to pay that price obviously is not gonna pay that price. If you can charge, and in an ideal world, at least for a capitalist, I would scan each customer with some sort of gun and I could see the maximum price that they're willing to pay. And that would maximize my revenues by being able to see the price that you're willing to pay, by seeing the price that they're willing to pay, by seeing the price that they're willing to pay. And if I could charge each of you the price that you're willing to pay, then that would maximize my revenues. In general, if I so if I lower prices, then I take in revenue from people that I would not otherwise get. But at the same time, then I'm giving a benefit to those people that are willing to pay the highest prices. So in the airline industry, in the... Um, in the, in the airline industry, hotels and rental cars, what they do is create rate fences, which essentially is that if I have somebody who's willing to pay the high price, I have to figure out a way to prevent them from paying the discount price. And this really, the origin of all of this goes back to American Airlines in the 70s. And American Airlines was, being, uh, was getting undercut by People Express. Remember People Express out of Newark? They were a discount airline. They were the first discount airline. They had watched Southwest, which at the time was just a regional airline, figured out a way to like cut costs to the bone. And People Express, for many people, that was the first time they'd ever flown commercially because you know the, the rates that were being set by the, by the Civil Aeronautics Board were insane. You had to be wealthy or a business person to fly at all you know, until the deregulation of the airline industry, which I guess happened in 74. And what happened was, was that Americans saw their prices being undercut and losing business to People Express. And Americans said, well, how can we, how can we maintain revenue? And so they realized that we've got two different kinds of customers. We have business customers, we have leisure travelers. I know certain things about these customers. I know that my business traveler needs to get home on Friday night to be with his family for the weekend. Or I know my business traveler needs to fly to Cleveland on Tuesday because it's an important business meeting and they can't miss the business meeting. So they have, they have inelastic demand. They gotta fly when they gotta fly. And they also have deep pockets because their company is paying for them. Leisure traveler, much more flexibility. Leisure traveler, is gonna plan their vacation, typically over school holidays, those kinds of things. They're gonna book way in advance. Business travelers are gonna book last minute. So they said, okay, you want the cheap fare? You want the cheap fare? Then you have to book in advance, two weeks in advance at least, and you have to stay over Saturday night. And that, that, that cut apart the business travelers off from the leisure travelers. And what they did was they said, okay, you can have the cheap fare if you meet these requirements, if you're willing to accept this, you know, these annoyances or whatever, these inconveniences. And they left enough seats aside, unsold, that would sell last minute for the business traveler who had no choice but to pay whatever the fare was because they had to fly then. And with that, they managed to push, you know, that was the end of People Express. When the, when the legacy airlines caught on to that. And eventually the hotels caught on to that. So you create a rate fence. You basically say, oh, here's a premium room. And you make that premium room so expensive that 
the average the average leisure traveler is not going to pay for that premium room. They're going to buy the cheap rooms, and eventually all the cheap rooms sell out. But you have these expensive rooms set aside, and the last minute business traveler is the one that's going to pay a premium rate for that. And it doesn't apply perfectly to the theme park industry, but what the theme park industry has started to do is signal has signaled guests by saying, look, here's a premium experience. And then guests who are willing to pay that higher price essentially receive a signal from the theme park that's like, oh, this is for me. I'm willing, I don't, I was willing to, oh, it's only $109 to get into the park today. I was willing to pay 150. That's awesome. And I get like a, I get a, I don't know, I get a souvenir popcorn bucket along with the along with admission i'm in so the parks are by 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 breaking down offers right by 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 uh offering more a la carte stuff right by you know disney i god you know this is the smartest thing ever in my whole life and i this isn't directly related but disney's holiday parties i mean I mean, usually you think, oh, I've got a theme park. I have to maximize my revenue for the day, right? Theme park opens in the morning. You get as many people as you can in there at as high a price as possible. The, the sun goes down. The lights go off. Everybody goes home. No, Disney says, hey, let's have another day at the theme park during this day. So it's like, hey, everybody go home. Oh, you want to come back in? It's another ticket. So they sell at the theme park twice in a day. That's like, that's brilliant. I love that. I love that. I know everybody, you know, mom and pops all over the world, they hate me. I remember my first talk at IAPA, I got interviewed by a by an Orlando Sentinel reporter because I was saying theme parks need to do this. They're they're leaving money on the table. And boy, Screamscape, Lance. Lance Hart at Screamscape, he had some choice words for me. Some professor at Farmingdale State College says that theme parks should charge more. He was mad. And, but I think that it's, I, I think it's genius. Look, you, you can't, you know, you can only cut costs so far, right? You want, a, you want a, a great guest experience. And when things look cheap, guests notice. So if you want guests to pay premium prices, you have to put that money in. I love when Universal added a an attraction that goes between the parks and you need a park hopper to enjoy that attraction they were they went up in my in my hall of fame for for brilliant revenue grab so i think that so those premium products like having a premium room or a premium car that's those act as rate fences if you want a premium experience here's the premium price now do i think there are ethical issues absolutely Absolutely. And that's why I think I and many others admired the original Disney model of free fast passes. That was, I thought that was state of the art. If anybody can get a fast pass, you just got to show up first. So there was no, there was no disadvantage. It didn't, your income didn't matter. If you were the first in the park, you got the free fast pass. It was the paper ticketing system, you know, and then obviously that started to change. I mean, ironically, Disney is the last major theme park chain in, uh, to, to go to paid Q, Q product, right? Six Flags has been doing it for years. After, uh, after Dick Kinzel left uh, Cedar Fair, Cedar Fair started doing it. Uh, even And, you know, the European theme parks, you know, they were resisting for a long time. They're starting to do it too. And, I've, and certainly all over Asia, you know, you can see it as well. I mean, I just... I mean, it's stupid, but even when the park's not busy, I buy I buy the Q product, you know, just to just to reward them for their forward thinking. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a lot of a lot of really interesting dynamics to that. No pun intended, I guess, with uh, with dynamic pricing. You talk about the backlash that you've gotten from suggesting that, from proposing that. Uh, but parks have also taken a creative way of 
taking that and spinning it so it comes across as, as a positive for the guests of saying, well, we want to space out the crowds throughout the years between the peak and the off-peak season so you have the most comfortable guest experience. Uh, when I worked for Universal many years ago um, in guest communications, you know, we had, we had you know, pre-programmed responses when guests complain about the price of Express Pass and saying, um, you know, it's, it's an enhancement to your visit. It's like flying first class. It's like sitting in a box seat a sporting event so it's a a more premium way to experience otherwise the same product that everyone uh or that every other guest is getting and then now we see uh some more parks particularly disney uh doing more dynamic pricing or demand-based pricing uh based off of the peak and the off-peak times of the year but in many cases too if you were going to if you're going to visit a theme park during the peak time and pay the peak price and let's say you're gonna buy the express pass during the peak time, which is the peak price. In some essence too, that the, the guest is actually paying more for what could be a subpar experience compared to if they were to then come in January right after the crowds go home and now it's substantially less busier and they're paying less for admission, paying less for express and waiting less anyway. So what are actually some of the best ways you've seen parks being able to spin this and say, no, this is actually a good thing for you, the guest, the consumer who's who's planning your visit? Well, in general, I, I would say that in general, if you do buy the premium product, you are getting a premium experience relative to the rest of the people in the park. So it's certainly, I, I, we, I never hesitate to buy the Q product and nine times out of 10, it's much, you know, it saves me hours and hours. Uh, I love uh, one of the best uh, um, benefits of being a, a Delta Diamond uh, medallion member is the free access to clear. And obviously it only works at so many airports, but boy, if I could, I would, again, I would, I would love to, you know, give a medal to clear for how many hours they've saved me at the airport from waiting in lines. But I think the Disney has a problem. It works really well at, at the Six Flags because it, re it really makes a difference. But Disney, the, the problem with Disney is that they, it's impossible almost to push people off the peak days. They, they're crowded so often that they, they either have to limit attendance or discount the low periods so deeply that I don't, I don't think they're willing to do that. But if they did serious, I mean, that's what I would, I would, uh, you know, experiment with, like, say, what if you, what if you had a ticket that was only $75 at your, at your, at your trough, at your lowest demand period, and just see what that did, you might get a lot of revenue there that you wouldn't have other otherwise gotten because people are willing to, at that price, People are willing to take their kids out of school. I mean, that's the issue is that even if you don't have any money, whether you're rich or poor, your kids have the same vacation. So you don't have, the idea is to create this flexibility or rather say, we can give you value if you're willing to be flexible. The problem is that given the school year, people don't have that, they simply don't have that, uh, that luxury of being able to, you know, move their kids vacation, they can't. I imagine that if the saving was so significant, then it's possible that somebody might be willing to take their kid out of school, you know, in the middle of the school year. I mean, anyway, so it's hard to, I mean, I, you know, this is one reason why people ask me, you know, why don't you work in the theme park industry is because it's hard to work in the theme park industry. I think, I think it's a, I think it's a challenging job. And I, I always take my hat off to theme park managers because between, you know, barf on a ride to, to, you know, hot days and crying babies and guests getting into fights and everything else, I, I'm, it's a challenging work. It's challenging work. It really is. So I, I mean, I'm sort of like Ralph Nader. He said, I'd rather work on GM than in GM, you know, when they tried to, you know, co-opt him and hire him into the company. So I, I'd rather work on theme parks than, than in theme parks. But those, those are great questions. And I think Disney is unusually challenged in that they have, they have such inelastic demand. Look at their prices. They're insane. Their prices are insane, literally. I mean, not to mention 
people have to fly or drive down there and the price of gas is shooting through the roof now. People have to fly or drive down there. Those, ho those Disney hotels are not cheap and they've pulled away many of the perks of staying in the Disney hotels. So, you know, average mom and dad with four kids or three kids or whatever it is, two and a half kids, you know, they're already spending a ton of money on Disney. They want that full, complete experience. And they're going to, and, and for many, it's a once in a decade thing. And so they're going to, they're going to borrow money. They're, they're going to use the credit card. It's, it's tough for Disney. Disney seems to be raising their prices and raising their prices and raising their prices, right? The, the only industries that have raised their prices as fast as Disney are education and med medical care are the only, you know, they've gone up much faster than inflation, as has Disney. And they don't get any drop in, uh, they don't have a drop in, in attendance. What are you supposed to do? when you raise prices and raise prices and your attendance doesn't go down. So they, they're really in a tough spot and they don't. And of course they're reported on so heavily. They, they're really not in a position to start saying, I don't know. They're, they have to be subtle about saying, okay, if you really want to enjoy yourself, here are some products that might uh, help you in that regard. And for someone who can afford it, that's, that's another point. For all the people that complain, there are some people that don't care about the price rises. They don't care how much Genie Plus costs. They don't care how much Lightning Lane costs. They're going to pay it because they want it. And Disney does enough market research to say there are people who want this. And, and we can, Disney's a, it's a corporation. They have to report quarterly increases every year to shareholders. They just they can't stand still and say, OK, we're, we're satisfied with our revenues. It, it, it's just that's not how corporations work. Yeah. And Martin, maybe I'm more sensitive to it being in the theme park industry. But, you know, Disney gets a lot of backlash for raising those prices because they say, you know, it's, it's unaffordable to go if you're an, an average family of four or five or whatever. Um, but to your point, they are a corporation and any corporation that sees that kind of demand and doesn't raise prices they're not going to survive. Right. So, so it goes back to nostalgia though, too, real quick, it goes back to nostalgia. So how do you balance that from, you know, being a company that is so beloved from a nostalgia standpoint and then saying, Hey, we we've still got to run this as a business. It's, it's two sides of a, of a, of a interesting coin. It is. I, I mean, I, I mean, as a management professor, you know, I have to tell my students don't leave money on the table you know, that's, that's just a bad idea. And then the ethicist, the ethicist side of me says, okay, you're, you know, you're making enemies of your, of your greatest fans. I mean, look at the howls over the annual pass changes, right? That's, that's been extraordinary. So like I said, they're in a very tough position. On the one hand, you know, a lot of Disney is, is accessible and affordable. Um, you know, more people have seen the Disney films than have visited the theme parks. So it's not like you can't be a Disney fan without going to the theme parks. But look, if Disney has kept, look, they closed down all of the Disney quests, right? They're clo they've closed down all of the Disney stores. You know, this is what monopolists do. Monopolists reduce output and raise prices. And Disney, Disney has been acting like a monopolist. So it does create space for other, for competitors, right? I think that, you know, there are other, you know, back in the, I mean, I, I mean, in a free market, if the market works efficiently, then other companies will come in and build theme parks. I don't know why New, the New York market was ignored for so long, but finally we have the Nickelodeon universe that just opened in, uh, in the Meadowlands at the, at the, uh, the American dream mall. So good on the Canadians for finally getting that mall open. And then, uh, and then Merlin, you know, now fully owned by, by Lego and Blackstone and, and the uh, some, some retirement fund, you know, they're, you know, they're really aggressive building attractions, right? The sea life aquariums, the Legolands, the Lego discovery centers, the Legoland hotels, the Legoland water parks. So I, I admire them because they're like, there's money to be made out here. And they do, and pe that people go to those places. I go to the crappiest theme parks in the world, 
and they're full. People are there because they're affordable. They can bring their family. There's something to do. The parks, from my point, from my vantage point, they're terrible. They're I don't mean I don't mean terrible, terrible, but it's all flat rides off the shelf. There's no theming. I don't know. There's some woods, very charming, but it's you know there's nothing special about those places. But people can afford to go there, and and so there's money to be made. So if Disney wants to be the insanely high priced you know sole provider of a particular product, then that leaves the rest of the market open. And until COVID, you know that market was moving along like a locomotive. Right. I mean, the, the industry has been growing and growing and growing and growing since the last recession, since 2008. And I, I've been going to China every year since, I don't know, 2012, because they keep building more theme parks in China. Now, I don't know if that's going to go on, given the sort of crash of that real estate bubble. I've been to China, looked through the gates at fully built theme parks that are not operating fully built, ready to open, gates closed, one security guard there saying we're not open. And it's just a theme park out in the middle of nowhere, no rides running, no people. And, you know, and that's the kind of buildup China's been getting. But in the big cities, so much demand, right? Big middle class in Asia, growing and growing, becoming wealthier. And that's why the, that's where the theme park industry has been growing. You know, we're seen as a mature market here in the United States. But I think there are advantage. There are certainly opportunities. You've got major markets with no major theme park, like Houston, and I guess I mean I know they're building these smaller parks, but um, New Orleans still doesn't have a theme park. I mean you've got big cities in the United States without a theme park. I mean look at the success. You can build a theme park in the middle of nowhere. Look at Silverwood. You know they're incre it's incredibly. It's always. I mean the one time I went there, it was crowded as heck. I couldn't even get on the choo choo train. It was so busy. So, Martin, you have visited more than, I believe you told us, more than 800 parks worldwide and ridden more than 2,100 roller coasters, which is really impressive. And I know we're starting to run a little low on time, but wondering if, if we can talk just a little bit about that as far as what park you visited, if there's any that stand out that were just the most interesting or any specific rides that maybe maybe interesting or peculiar or so that uh, you've been able to collect with you on in, in your stories along the way? Sure. Um, well, uh, I mean, I'll start with one. I, I mean, one of the weirdest rides I've ever been. I mean, I don't even know. I, it was basically, you know, those big 40 or 50 gallon oil drums, right? Just yeah. and and it was a it was a weird flat ride that had about six or seven of these giant oil drums, you know, with the end facing you. And each of these oil drums was themed to be like a cow or a steer and had a little saddle on it. And little kids would get up on the oil drum. I wrote it once too. And they would start a song and the cycle and the oil drum would just try to shake you off. And I was like, this is hilarious. So I had to write it. And of course there's a cushioned floor I mean, it was the simplest thing and completely goofy. And I was like videotaping the ride until like some angry father came up to me. This is this is a, a hazard of being a fan and, and wanting to take a lot of pictures. But I mean, that was the kind of quirky ride. And, and you see just weird stuff like that all over the world. Just bizarre things. That, I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of famous, but the dog fart roller coaster at Bon Bon Land in Denmark. I mean, that's that's sort of a that's a standard goofy, goofy one. In terms of the park, I mean, I just love Tokyo Disney Resort. The you know, the, the mentality of the Disney guest experience combined with the culture of Japan's politeness. Just I don't know. There's some magic there that just I, I was telling my students how I was, I kind of had a, it, it had rained overnight. I had my bag, my camera, um, my, my park map, and I'm trying to like get myself together. I've got a cup of coffee and just, and then out of the, out of the, uh, the asphalt, you know, out of the, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the stones of the walkway uh, grew a, a janitor, a custodian, who appeared literally out of nowhere, looked at me, and then just immediately 
whipped out a towel and dried off the bench that was near me. And I was like, this is amazing. I watched a custodian at Tokyo Disney spend 20 minutes removing any trace of a gum. You know, there was gum. And he basically turned it into an immaculately new paving stone. And th this is the kind of service you have at, at Tokyo Disney Resort, not to mention incredible theming. But most Americans can't conceive of Tokyo Disney Sea. It's just, you know, but there are other parks that are closer to home if you don't want to go to Asia. I'm a big fan of, of the European parks. Like I love Fantasieland in Germany. I love Europa Park in Germany. The Efteling in the Netherlands. Oh my, it's, I, I love, I don't know what it is about that place. I mean, I, I lived in the Netherlands for three and a half years working. Uh, I was at that hot, at hotel school, The Hague. And maybe I got infected with the Dutch love of Efteling because that's their Disney. That's their homegrown Disney. But it's a really well done park. I got to ride, it's, the English word is dream flight. Um, in Dutch, it's droomvlucht. And I got to ride Dromflucht with um, with the CEO of Sally Dark Rides, um, who you had as a guest on your show, and I am help me out here, John Wood. John, thank you, John Wood. I got to ride Dromflucht with John Wood. That was awesome. That was so awesome because he was like, "Whoa, this is great!" You know, that's a crazy ride if you've ever never been on it. It has the the final scene is just outstanding. I don't want to ruin it for guests, but it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a suspended car with a track overhead. And at the end, you just spiral down this long helix in this in insanely themed room where it's all fairies and trolls. And the, I mean, uh, Efteling hires a composer to compose original music for all of its rides. I mean, that's just, I've heard Efteling music used in other parks. Like that's how, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. So I, I love those parks. I love like, I don't know, Farup Summerland in Denmark, which is just so rustic. Like it's a theme park with modern rides, but it's just lakes and trees. And, and I know some people make fun of trees as theming, but I, I find it charming. And it's just nice to breathe in the balsam, you know, to breathe in the, the fresh air at a theme park. I mean, one of the best things about theme parks is being outside in the fresh air. And a lot of parks, you know, really overdo the asphalt. So, and, and that's just, you know, I know, I understand that's, that's how it is. So I think, um, anyway, and we've been to a lot of like, just run down weird park, like weird parks. So we were in, um, what was our last, Vietnam. And, like we went to a whole park that was based on, you know, Vietnamese, uh, mythology, uh, just just the weirdest, like going through like a a, a, a history of Buddhism walkthrough, right? Now that's, you know, you've been through haunted walkthroughs before. Have you ever been through a walkthrough that told you the story of Siddhartha and Buddhism? I mean, that kind of thing is just totally weird. And then um, India, boy, we saw some, we saw some pretty rundown parks, you know, but they, the ride's running. If the credit's running, we'll, we'll get on it. And in places like China and India, guests stop you to take a picture because they, they've never like met a Westerner before. So they want their own souvenir picture to see to, to be with you, which is bizarre, but I don't know. We we love it. It's it's so much fun. And uh it it's it's a great way to, I mean, I think travel is a great source of learning. I don't think Americans travel enough. And I wish more, even more, I wish more enthusiasts could get out of Ohio and Pennsylvania and, you know, and their mother's basement and get out there and visit some of the, uh, some of the other theme parks in the world. It's not that people are friendly and you don't have to learn the language to, to, uh, you know, we've got these things now and, and it, they can do an enormous amount of work for you. So we've had incredible experiences and I, I, I actually, I, I have a way, I, I, I post all my photos on Flickr. So maybe at the end, I'll, I'll give you my Flickr address. And every single trip, I've, every photo I've taken, you can see my eight trips to China and Taiwan and you know Macau and everything. And, and you can see it's just the whole thing is visually stunning, amazing food that you would never try anywhere else. 
it's it's a great experience but it is the 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 desire to go out and have fun with your family is completely universal. Every every country, Muslim country, Chinese communist country, Christian country, Israel, Jewish country, it doesn't matter where, everybody wants to go out with their kids and ride on roller coasters and have fun on dark rides. It it it's it's a universal need to to uh to uh recreate as they say. Yeah. Well, Martin, this has been a fascinating conversation and thank you so much for your time and all of your, your insight and all of your passion. Um, we definitely want to hear uh, that Flickr address, uh, but I just want to say as someone who does love to travel, you've also, you've inspired me to travel even more. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, so Martin, tell us how people can get in touch with you, how they can learn more and how they can see all your pictures. Sure. Well, uh, if you just go to flickr.com slash M-I-L-S-T-1. So that's my, those are my initials, M-I-L, MIL, and S-T-1 is student one from an old student email address I had. So if you go to flickr.com slash M-I-L-S-T-1, you'll see all of my, all of our photo trips. And then I'm pretty easy to find on social media. Martin Lewison, I'm on Twitter. Also, M-I-L-S-T-1 is something you could search. If you search for Professor Roller Coaster, you can find me. Uh, I'm on pretty much every social media platform, LinkedIn, Facebook, and you can also go to Farmingdale State College and search for me there. Excellent. Well, Martin, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I will echo Matt's statement that you've also inspired me to want to go out and, and travel more and, uh, and be able to collect those experiences. But in the meantime, for everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.